Welcome to episode 11 of Continuous Quality Compliance. Today I'm talking about Regulation 11, Consent. The CTC says the intention of this regulation is to make sure that all people using the service and those lawfully acting on their behalf have given consent before any care or treatment is provided. Providers must make sure that they obtain the consent lawfully and that the person who obtains the consent has the necessary knowledge and understanding of the care and or treatment that they are asking consent for. Consent is an important aspect of providing care and treatment, but in some cases, acting strictly in accordance with consent will mean that some of the other regulations cannot be met. For example, this might apply with regard to nutrition and person-centered care. However, providers must not provide unsafe or inappropriate care just because someone has consented to care or treatment that would be unsafe. CQC can actually prosecute for a breach of this regulation or a breach of part of the regulation and can move directly to prosecution without first serving a warning notice. So as you can see, taking consent is really important because CQC can obviously take regulatory action. The CQC will also refuse registration if providers can't satisfy them that they can and will continue to comply with Regulation 11. Some of the important points to remember are the person taking consent must have training in the Mental Capacity Act because they will need to decide whether the person has capacity to give consent. When a person is asked for their consent, information about the proposed care and treatment must be provided in a way that they can understand it. And this information must include information about the risks, complications and any alternatives. And that's really important. I know recently when I had to uh, give consent for a procedure I was having, the consultant really explained all the pros and cons to me of having the procedure. And it was only when I was happy with all the information they had given me and I was happy to sign the consent form that the procedure went ahead and they gave me enough space and time to ask any questions that I may have had. The person who's taking the consent obviously needs to understand the treatment so they can answer, answer any questions that the person who's giving consent can, um, can answer. The discussions about consent also have to be held in a way that meets people's communication needs. Obviously, this could be that you need to give the ask for consent in, a, in their native language. You may have to use different formats, so you may have to use accessible information standard. You may have to include a speech language therapist or even an independent advocate. So all these considerations need to be ta taken into note before you sit down and ask for consent. It's also important to remember that consent may be implied 
and include nonverbal communication, such as sign language or by someone rolling up their sleeve to have their blood pressure taken. That's implied consent. Or if they offer the hand when asked if they would like help to move. The other thing people have to remember is that consent must be treated as a process that continues throughout the duration of the care and treatment. Recognising that it may be withheld and or withdrawn at any time. So giving my example, just because I signed the consent for that procedure, at any moment I could withdraw that consent and say I no longer want the procedure and that would be my right to do that. When a person using a service or a person acting lawfully on their behalf refuses to give consent or withdraws it, all people providing that care and treatment must respect it and that's important to remember. When a person lacks mental capacity to make an informed decision or give consent, staff then have to act in accordance with the requirements of the Mental Capacity Act and the Associated Code of Practice. So that's why it's really important that staff are trained in the Mental Capacity Act. The consent procedure also has to make sure that people are not pressurised into giving consent. And where possible, plans are made well in advance to allow the, the person time to respond to people's questions and provide adequate information. The policies and procedures that you have for obtaining consent must reflect current legislation and guidance. And obviously, all staff must follow them at all times. You also have to bear in mind that if you're registered with the General Dental Council, the British Medical Association, the General Medical Council, all these, if you look on their website, have information about consent. So. If you're a member of any of these, then you have to make sure that you're following their guidance as well. And actually, they're usually very good for looking at in terms of training. I know the GMC have training on their website. So when you're looking at consent, it's important not only to look at your processes and procedures, but also to look where you can get the training from and how people keep up to date. And I think it's also one of the areas that, that should be audited, that the right forms are being completed. And I think inspectors would be looking at that, especially if you're doing surgical procedures. It's really important that consent forms have been signed and that the consent form for that particular treatment procedure has all the relevant information for the patient to digest. So that's really important. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes.